Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery, who makes sophisticated, elk-free drinks that still have all the taste of a good time. G&T without the tears, whiskey without the wobbles, and other delicious cocktails too. Switching the ritual instead of ditching the ritual is so much easier. Stay in high spirits, keep a clear mind, head to mondaydistillery.com for more. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr, and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi, and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today, I'm very excited because we're back in the studio. Finally, the floor's redone. We're sort of getting there. And I've got Steve Wallet from Burley, who's um, come down. We met at one of Ash's gigs a couple of weeks ago. I was on the merch stand, and we got talking about not boozing. And so I, of course, dragged Steve down here to do an do a podcast episode. So, hello, Steve. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Danny. Um, and I don't think you dragged me down here. I came down with bells on. <laughs> I'm a big fan of ashes. So. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Now you, it's really cool. You were like, it's funny when you walked in, ashes in his pajamas. You're like, oh, he's just like a normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you only see him on the stage and in his in his stage persona, and yeah, you just think, you know. Yeah, it's it's different to see him just here as a as a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very much just a guy, and one that's also been through the struggle of alcohol, and perhaps not to the depths of what yours was and what you shared with me already. Um, but you know, it's a struggle that we all go through, to, you know, in different degrees. I'd love you to start, you know, sharing your story with how you got started. Like, when did you first start drinking? Um, so pretty early on, I was a young starter at school I think I started high school when I was actually still 11 oh wow but you know for the first month and then I was 12 in the March I think so and it was that first year at high school I remember going to a party I don't even remember how we got the alcohol but we got bottles of passion plot back then oh that's not yeah so Mm, 12 I I would have been that would have been 88 yeah yeah and that's the first time I remember that feeling of just being no inhibitions, no self-respect, basically. And the first time I remember, it's like there was only bits and pieces of the night. 
Yeah. Like, so I, I didn't know then, but I know as I got older and and blackouts became more prominent, but perhaps I'd blacked out for, you know, parts of that night. Wow, so yeah. blacking out on the first night of drinking is pretty... Um, pretty intense sorry that's my washing machine going in the background there i said to you before should i turn that off um yeah blacking blacking out the first time that's um that's yeah. pretty full on so you must have really gone for it well yeah you know um whatever i was feeling at, at 12 was a very tender age for me that we may touch on a bit later but not just um addiction wise it was um you know fear the feeling of not being enough and not being loved and um you know those those other games going on on in my head, on a personal level. That that's where you know I wanted that release from those feelings. Yeah, and that feeling of not being enough. It's just this seems to be this common theme that runs through with pretty much everyone I speak to that has an alcohol problem, whether it's daily addiction or the binge drinking. You know that this mm. sense of and this core belief of I'm not enough, and so mm. then they have the alcohol and then suddenly that kind of disappears and they feel suddenly I'm enough, I'm, I, I can do anything now, you know, I'm confident, I'm, I'm wrapped in the warm arm of this passion pop. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just wasn't passion pop, it went on to, mm-hmm. to a lot heavier stuff. But um, So what happened? Did you start yeah. drinking often with your friends after that? Uh, no, not often. There was a couple of times, probably the first couple of years. Um, you know, we'd raid our our parents' um, cabinet, you yeah. know, and take a little bit out of each whiskey bottle or whatever, and put some tea mix back up in. a rocket fuel and yeah, cold tea and stuff like that. So we'd we'd do a bit of that, but then, luckily for me, on on an addiction level, I found boxing when I was about thirteen, and so I I first walked into the boxing gym in I think about October of nineteen eighty nine. And I guess it resonated with me and that it gave me a reason to be disciplined. It gave me a reason not to not to go and do the underage boozing. And I thought I was going to be Australia's next Jeff Fennick, which didn't quite turn out that way. Um, but I kept me off off the alcohol for so for about three years. I didn't I didn't get into any underage drinking at all and then my brother was about 18 months older than me so when I was 16 and a half he'd already turned 18. In New South Wales I had the the photo license the first photo license was pretty rough and we looked alike you know so yeah at 16 and a half I was in pubs and clubs with my brother's ID and never got questioned, basically. So, what was happening with the boxing at this point? Had that taken I'd, a back step? Yeah, well, I told my boxing coach that I wanted to concentrate on year eleven and twelve, which was a sorry, Billy, if you're listening, it was a fucking lie. Um, it was all about yeah, just getting in and getting drunk and having a bit of a party time. I'm sure that happens a lot. It's just the lure, the lure of the alcohol is just too strong. Mm. Okay, and then what happened? Um, so then. Around, I think, 18 or 19, I went back and had a couple of, a couple more amateur fights and actually won a, a police boys state title in New South Wales. But I still didn't have the, the sense of I'm enough. You know, I'd, I'd got this, this gold medal and this big belt, to like a best overall performance at these weekend titles and 
and got the photos and I and I guess on the I wanted to be proud but I just wasn't. I don't know what it was. Um, there was something missing still. So there was still that core belief that you weren't enough and so therefore you weren't really believing it even though you had this, you'd won and you'd, you'd achieved this great thing but mm. part of you, that part of you didn't want to believe. Nah, no, it's, well, you know, it's if it's in that core so it's pretty hard to sort of just wipe away. Um, from there though, I, I must have been going on to 20 I turned professional in boxing and I'd still sort of, the alcohol was there. I tried to dance around the fighting. I mean, it's hard to get on the piss and make weight and train. And, you know, it's a whole, boxing's a whole life. Like get up and run in the morning, watch what you eat, train in the afternoon, sit in a sauna if you have to for for hours at a time you know and I just sort of tried to take shortcuts and and get drunk on the weekends and then try and lose the weight again to make make weight for boxing in a week or two you know and I did that for a couple of years and I had a I had a number of great fights and then the grog took over I couldn't I couldn't sustain that sort of lifestyle that it was pretty intense to get so drunk and and then at that time around 20 um, I found speed as well. Um, so, and then I thought that to me was like, oh, there's the answer. I won't black out if I have speed. I remember doing that with cocaine. Yeah, well, yeah. that came later, but <laughs> for me, but yeah, that that was one of the things I used to. There was um, on on that on that note as well. Like, I used to do some other things like. I drink JD and Coke in a midi glass on one night and I thought, oh, I didn't black out. That's the answer. You know, and then when I tried speed, I was like, that's the answer. And then next time around, I blacked out again. So, uh, yeah, I'll uh, just interject because I remember feeling after like realizing that white wine and champagne was not my friend because I was like blacking out like left, right and center. I thought, well, I discovered vodka and soda. And thought, well, this is great because there's not many calories and I can control the amount of, of alcohol I'm putting in. Mm-hmm. But it, I would still end up some nights not, but then more often than not, particularly if other people were making my drinks, fuck man, just get smashed and blacked out and, it, yeah, worse still. So then finding other things to kind of, oh, I can drink more now. I don't have to black out now because I've got this, but I was still blacking out of that too. Yeah. For yeah, moments I know, in the I night. know the feeling. I really do. I tried everything. Isn't it fucked oh. up how we like, but we don't ever go, just stop drinking. Like, <laughs> that is a fucked up part because that's the biggest piece of this equation is the mm. alcohol is causing the blackout. But why don't we ever think, just don't drink? We just still try and find a way out around it, try and, you know, still have it. Because, I don't know. It's the maybe madness. The it's core the belief is maybe we'll, oh, next time we'll be different. You know, next time will be different. Next time will be different. Next and time will next be time different. Next time never comes. So yeah, it it exacerbates that feeling of not enough too. When you do wake up sure. blacked out and you're hating on yourself and you feel like shit, and it's just exacerbating that feeling of I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. Yeah. But still, we don't go. Hmm. We're going to take out the one main ingredient here. Yeah. Sorry, I digress. Yes. Go on. Yeah, so so a number of times I'd had great fights the night before and, you know, people come, oh, that was awesome and I should have been proud of myself but I didn't know how to be. And a number of times I'd step out of the ring, 
have a shower and within 10 minutes I've had a schooner in my hand, you know, and then the the adventure starts for the night and I wake up in the morning, shit, what happened, you know, so. So you're blacking out a lot still? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. most of the time. Would you remember what you did at all? Were there any recollections of? Like little snapshots, almost like a, a like a Polaroid. Remember the old Polaroid pictures? And it'd be like just that Polaroid picture. And I'm like, oh, shit. And then, and then the anxiety would come in of like, oh, shit, did I hit on someone's wife or girlfriend or have I touched them accidentally or inappropriately or have I said something to... Yeah, just all that, all those questions, and and with a with a boxing background, I was always, I'd always ended up in a, not always, I shouldn't say that, but but a few times, more often than not, I'd end up in the, in a in a boozed up fight right. with people, and I'd wake up in the morning and sort of check my nose and check my teeth were still there, and and check for black eyes and stuff because I just didn't know. I had a friend from high school who was a boxer as well and he would get drunk and often end up in fights. Mm-hmm. And and people would pick him too because they knew he was a boxer. And yeah, he would just go crazy and it was just horrific to watch. And yeah, I, I I'd love to catch up with him one day and have this sort of conversation. I wonder mm-hmm. if he's still drinking, but yeah, it was a pretty dangerous combo for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and wondering what you might have done to somebody. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So were you f- how were you feeling about yourself the next morning, you know, checking your nose, checking your teeth, but wondering had, how you'd behaved? How did it make you feel inside? Oh, that's a good question. The anxiety was, was there, like, shit, what have I done? Not knowing what you've done. And sometimes, like, I'd um, get up and walk out and see that my car was there and I'd taken it to the pub. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so... Over my whole drinking, I became a an habitual drink driver, mm-hmm. and and you know sometimes I don't even remember. And um, driving, yeah, that's yeah. really common. I've yeah. had a lot of people on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I just even the next day driving to work after a big night and not remembered the mm. the journey to work. You know. So were you feeling shame and regret and embarrassment, those sort of things? Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, almost embarrassment because I didn't know what I'd done or, mm-hmm. you know, or who I defended. Or, mm. You know, yeah, it was it was hard to deal with. How did you cope with those feelings of shame and embarrassment and not knowing? Would you just sort of get up and get on with your day and try and ignore it or would you approach people and ask them what you did? Or uh, I was living in, a, in around that period of time, I was living in a share house with a couple of brothers so we would just sort of, oh, okay, there's a pub open, let's go back to the pub. And, yeah, it just became a cycle of the hair of the dog and then another blackout. So just ignoring it pretty much, yeah. just saying, just, yeah. yeah, not mentioning it. doesn't exist. <laughs> the people that you lived with, did anyone there ever pull you up on it or were they just as much No, they were, they were just as much pissheads as I was. So they're just like, don't worry about it, mate, yeah. or, or you and just they, don't bring it up. And they were potheads as well so they you know right so. yeah so when I was 21 the boxing sort of took a back seat again because I just couldn't sustain the the the, the drinking like I was cutting it down okay I've got a fight in two weeks I'll have my last drink here 
Then it got to, I've got a fight next Friday night. I'll have a drink this Friday night, you know. And it just, it couldn't work. And then August of 97, um, I fought a bloke. It was a classic fight. It's actually on YouTube now. But he, he he lived in Burley at the time. And when he's the first bloke I rang when I moved to Queensland. Actually, really good mates now. And after that fight, I just turned my back on boxing, basically. I couldn't. I couldn't sustain it, and I went from we fought. Why? I just, I just couldn't do it. I just drinking took over, drinking and drugging took over, and I, I went from about sixty eight and a half kilos we fought at in August of ninety seven. By the Christmas New Year period that year, I went to probably close to a hundred kilos. Wow, that's a big yeah. increase in a short time. Yeah, and then I and then I meant I was still that weight. For I often make a joke, you know, the guy that I fought, Gav, who who I'm good mates with now, he fought for the Commonwealth title in Canada in '99, September of '99, and I often say that I couldn't fight my way out of the Ryan's Hotel in Thoreau <laughs> at the same time, you know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so he was he was still at that weight, and I was, I think the heaviest I ever remember weighing myself was one hundred and three kilos. Wow! Mm-hmm. And um, was that just from alcohol, not eating well? Yeah, mm. just crap food, all the burgers and crap I could chuck in, and not training, um, not training, and not doing a thing. Basically, just being a robot, going and going to work to get money to drink it to drug it and mm-hmm. yeah at at your, your the the peak of your drinking how much alcohol were you consuming and how often around then i was doing night shift in sydney on the railway so the earliest train was like five o'clock in the morning and we might finish about two or three mm-hmm. so we'd be in the pub for three hours most of the time i'd miss the train um that'd be i think it was like a Wednesday payday, mm-hmm. I'd just drink until the money ran out basically for the week. Might right. be three or four nights in a row. Yeah. Of just constant drinking. Yeah. 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 And drinking in the morning or, or waiting? Well, well, in the morning after night shift, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember a couple of times Mark Taylor, the cricketer, made 334 runs or something. It was about 90. It was late 90s anyway. And I'd um, been at the pub just across from Central Railway Station in Sydney. And I got on the train, like they kicked me out about 11 o'clock in the morning, got on the train, I laid my head down, and then I woke up as the train, it went all the way down south of Wollongong to a place called Dapdo, and then it went all the way back to Sydney, and I woke up as it pulled into Central Station. Back where you started? Yeah. And then I just got up and went back to the same pub, same smelly work clothes and everything, and... And yeah, stayed there till all hours in the morning. Right, wow. And then, yeah, so it was um, out of control. Were you ever worried about it? I wasn't, no. My mum often spoke to me that um, you've got to give up drinking, you've got to give up drinking. And I said, no, nah, it's all right, it's all good. It never worried me at all. Like I used to think I was, um, maybe not at that time, but later on, um, in my drinking, I remember back in 2007, I went to Thailand, and like I said, I was up over 100 kilos. When you're five foot nine, that's a fair bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I thought I was God's gift to women and just didn't sink in that I was overweight, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. So, and I yeah, just... So there's a bit of a disconnect going on. Absolutely. Yeah, with the, with the body image and the, with the drinking and everything. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. So how long have you been sober for? I got sober on the 11th of July, 2008. 2008. Almost 14 years. Yeah, 14 years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You shared with me when we met down at Ash's show the reason you stopped drinking. Would you mind sharing that? Um, so for me it wasn't a, a rehab or anything. It was it was a very abrupt social, what do they say, a significant social event or a significant yeah. emotional event that, um, that caused me not to drink anymore. At the time I was living in a place called Shellhaven Heads on the south coast of New South Wales here. And it's just coincidental. My idol that I looked up to boxing, he was like my – I'd spar him all the time and he should have been world champion but cocaine took that away from him, right? So um, he was weighing in at the the pub about four doors around the corner. And so I thought I'd went around and – and sort of had a had a laugh with him and whatever, and then I just got really drunk and don't remember leaving the pub and don't know why I didn't just go home four doors around the corner. I ended up driving from there to back towards Berry on the also on the south coast, about twelve k's along a um, undulating, windy country road on a. Thursday night was really windy and um, about quarter past nine at night and um, one of those Polaroid moments I spoke of before, like I've got this snapshot, I don't remember driving, but I've got this snapshot of my work boot hitting the brake pedal and then next thing I know my car's on the roof, on the wrong side of the road, on the roof, about a meter away from a tree maybe not even all of a sudden I realized Byron and that's my son who was at the time six years old he was in the back seat so oh. <sighs> that um I thought I'd done more forgiveness for this but mm. I get a bit emotional sometimes yeah. um so that was to me just the wake-up call I needed um, I'd, I'd had that thought of just run through the, f- grab him and run through the, the paddock and avoid the police and whatever. But I, I just, I couldn't do that. And I, um. Was he okay? Yeah, yeah thankfully. Yeah. No one was injured. His mum was in the car as well and she lived in Bury, So I think we were heading there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've got no idea. Mm-hmm. So. The ambulance arrived and I just cuddled him and with the shame and the guilt and the regret and everything that goes with it and um, and just, I don't know, I was so, so embarrassed basically. Um, and I tried to tell the ambulance and the police when they arrived were already in the ambulance that I'd only had a couple um, and I... Uh, we were taken off to the hospital at, up on the Shahaven River in Nara there. And for the next probably three hours, I was 
in a room with just two police officers and I wasn't allowed to leave that room even to know if my son was okay or not until the blood test was taken and that was done I guess about two and a half hours after the accident. When the results finally came through about five or six months later the reading was um, 0.154 so yeah I was a fair bit over the, the legal limit wow and that was my second major offense in that five-year window so yeah it wasn't good wow so moving on from from that shitty night i like to say it was the worst night of my life which it was but it's turned out to be the best night of my life Mm, i was just about to say that yeah so um then the next morning we went down to where they towed the car to. It was quite a good car, actually, the best car I've ever owned. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we went down to where the, the car got towed to and, and my little son, Byron, he's like, um, he, he looked at the car and he just said to me in his little voice, Daddy, what are we going to do now? Your car's broken. And it was all gravel. I remember, like gravelly road base on the ground. I just dropped to my knees and I, and I gave him a really big bear hug, and I said, "Mate, um, I promise you, I'll never dro- drink another drop as long as I live." Mm-hmm. And um, it's probably the only promise I've ever kept in my whole life, but um, but a pretty good one. <laughs> so. Yeah. Ooh, wow. Yeah, so oof, there was a lot of tears mm. from me. There was a lot of, you know, the next few days, weeks, months of, fuck, my life's over. You know, I knew I would lose my licence for a long time. Mm-hmm. Small country town, public transport virtually didn't exist. Six-year-old son, broken home with his mother, you know. So the journey began. Fuck. Yeah. Firstly, I just want to acknowledge that I'm listening to you. I'm brought to tears. My stomach's churning because I that didn't happen to me. That wasn't my story, but it could well have been. I, dro- I drank drove with my kids, mm-hmm. you know, more times than I wish to remember. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this as well have either had that situation or feel what I feel, thank fucking God. Like, oh, this could be my story or thank God it wasn't my story. It could have happened to any of us. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I'm just, um, you know, I'm not a, a God person by any way, but there was definitely some sort of higher power that that um, gave me enough of a kick up the ass to wake up but yeah. not to injure my son, you know. Yeah, it's, it's tough to even think about. Yeah, it's a miracle, isn't it? And it's almost like the universe sending you the biggest wake-up call mm-hmm. and sparing your son but saying, you're not fucking getting it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not seeing that this needs to stop. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That was it. And and I I spoke to it because at the time I was coaching my son's soccer team. He, he wasn't really into it and that was cool. But... um. I was. I was probably more into the coach and the soccer team than he was playing the soccer. Right, yeah. You know, so I'd, um, um, 
and I and I told the the other parents that that's it. I I just can't do it again. Mm-hmm. And I'd even remember the first couple of weeks. They were like, "Oh, are you sure you're gonna not drink?" And you know, really? So yeah. When they knew what yeah. had happened. Yeah. So wow. yeah. I guess the that's just our culture, and it sucks really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you've got this mammoth task ahead of you. You know, there's obviously a lot of drinking had gone on, and you've had this accident to deal with. And how? Tell me about like when you started. Like, so you've decided I'm not going to drink again. What? How did you do it? How did you? Did you have some serious emotional leverage to keep you sober? But yeah, absolutely. So. Luckily enough, at the time, I was working for the council in Wollongong and we had um, like unlimited sick leave, so to speak. It wasn't termed that, but that's what it was. So I was able to get a a medical certificate to say that I was unable to work due to the the stress, the anxiety, whatever. they I can't remember what they termed it. So that was helpful in a way and not helpful also. You know, the isolation wasn't helpful. Being at home by myself, going, eating my whole head out, yeah. like, oh, geez, what have you done? Mm-hmm. But in a, there was another sort of um, universe moment, if you will. The, I'd never visited that doctor before. He was a locum or whatever in the small town. And then he recommended me to a psychologist in North Nowra. And Dr. Mario Farina. So I, I went there which was amazing and and I kept I visited him for about 2 years I think in sobriety I I almost got this sense that he wasn't talking to me out of a textbook right that he was talking to me this is coming from inside he knows what I'm going through he's he'd obviously done his psychology degree in sobriety right mm-hmm. but he didn't he didn't tell any he didn't tell me any of that you could tell the, the teeth weren't replaced, you know, he had the jail-style tattoos up his arm and he didn't try and hide them. He'd roll his shirt up and, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and he didn't drive a flash car or any of that. Yeah. But he, he spoke from the heart. Mm. And it was that, to me, was just a, a massive part of my early recovery. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah. And I, you know, I owe him so much. Yeah, it's having, I guess we learn best from people who have been there and done that. Absolutely. Yeah, we don't want to go and see a drug and alcohol counsellor who's never had a drinking problem because... Oh, that's right. How, how? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like going to see a doctor that's overweight and red-faced. Yeah, and although there's like, plenty of those he around. Doesn't, he doesn't look healthy. I don't know if I want his advice, you know. So that's amazing. So it was really just relying on the psychologist and your own emotional pain I, 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 um, Like I said, that was a Thursday night the accident happened. On the, I think, Saturday evening, maybe Sunday evening, I rang the alcohol and drug info line, helpline. Oh, yeah. Info and helpline. Mm-hmm. And I kept that number in my phone for about 10 years that I could give to other people, you know. Yeah. Um, and I virtually just, I don't know how they understood me, I virtually just cried down the phone. Oh. Um, and then they told me there was AA meetings in in Bury, where I, um, so the the closest town to Shalhaven Heads, where I was living still, yeah, and yeah, so a week had gone past. The first AA meeting I'd went to was the the week exactly a week after the accident had taken place. Mm-hmm. I rode over there, and I was getting around like on an old Kmart jobby push bike, you know. And I had no light or anything, so I'd cable tied a, a dolphin torch to the handlebars and it's like 12 k's over this big undulating, windy country <laughs> road, you know. It's cold as shit down there too. <laughs> and so, but I just wanted to go and, and the first meeting I went to in Barry, it was like, I'd, I'd often tried to talk to friends and family about blacking out over, over the whole of my drinking days, you know. And no one had ever understood. Not one person had ever understood what I was talking about. And then I walked into this AA meeting and they're talking about blackouts. I'm like, oh, thank fuck, someone understands. Someone <laughs> knows what I'm going through. Yeah. You know, it was like there was that moment of, oh, shit, mm-hmm. I'm not nuts, you know. Right. And then um, there were so many people there and I wouldn't have picked it in that small country town, you know. And they, I remember they said, we're about halfway through and we're not going to get around to everyone. Does anyone want to share, have a de- burning desire to share? And like this little timid nutter, I just poked my hand up and I said, through tears as well, and I said, oh, I'd, yeah, I'd like to share. Oh, and yeah. basically I told him just straight away about what had gone on a week earlier mm-hmm. through the tears and everything and um yeah and i just um that was that was a big part that was a big help wow. how did it feel to share with people you didn't know but obviously people that had been on a similar journey how did that feel to share with them it was fantastic to just let it out yeah really yeah and basically i didn't care if i didn't know them or not i just wanted to keep sharing it and keep sharing it and keep sharing it yeah as i have done over the whole almost 14 years now. Like, I don't keep it a secret from anyone. I don't care. If you judge me from what I did 14 years ago, there's the door, mate. See you later, you know. Yeah, well, you told me pretty quickly after we started talking and established that we, you know, don't drink, whatever. Um, And I was, yeah, I was like, wow. And I just felt nothing but compassion, certainly no judgment. And I think that's the thing with sharing with people who have been there is that there is very rarely any judgment, you know. Yeah, true. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And I've shared with so many people, like on on work sites or at yeah. places, and you wouldn't, you can't, like, they don't wear them, you know, like a, 
a thing on their head saying, yeah, I'm, I'm an ex-alco as well. But <laughs> there's been so many times, just like for one example, where I've shared and it's allowed that person to share back. Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking strangers, right? So one, one example, right, I've walked down there, I think I needed just some me time, right? Yeah. Which we do, right? Yeah. And this um, bloke, I love stopping and patting dogs, right? And this, and I stopped and pat this dog, with, and this guy would have been older than my dad, I'd say. And he said, "I oh, she'll be 12 in July. And I said, oh, I'll be 12 years sober in July, just like that. <laughs> yeah. I said, we've got something in common. And it, and it opened up an avenue for that guy who was, and once, once he'd opened up, he was struggling with his son's addiction. And it was a, it was just such a cool moment, you know. Yeah. yeah. And just through that, of me being honest about twelve years in July, you know, it just it was such a cool moment. And he, um, yeah, he was holding back the tears to telling me that his son was, I think his son was addicted to the ice, maybe or something like that. Mm-hmm. And look, um, yeah, we had a had a great little moment, and and just. Had a had a big hug and and mm. I said, mate, it's it's you know it's an illness. And he mm. said, I know that. Mm. He said, I don't. I would never hate my son, but I hate the illness. Yeah, yeah. You know, so just just little shares like that have yeah. have opened up avenues for people to be able to get stuff off their chest. I suppose. Hundred percent. That's exactly yeah. why I do this podcast. Yeah. Steve, it's so that we can share our stories so that other people don't feel so much shame and that perhaps they might be able to then share their story with someone else or Yeah, absolutely. It might create an avenue for them to be able to open up to someone. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing to share. What's there's that saying, we recover loudly so that other people don't have to suffer in silence. Oh right. Yeah. I've not heard that one. Yeah, that's I cool. love that one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's a bit Well, I get the one from my daughter. I've now got a six-year-old daughter. Um, and she's always saying, sharing's caring, Daddy. And I, <laughs> and I say that. I used to, as, you know, my son got older and he started drinking and um, he'll be 20 next week. So, and he's in that phase of addiction himself. The, wow, the that's hard to watch. Well, he doesn't have much to do with me, so... Oh. Which is that's heartbreaking itself, but um, right. you know I I keep trying. Yeah. Um, well, he's basically the most of the reason I moved to Queensland three and a half years ago, mm. and but I tried to say to him, you never know what someone else is going through. Mm. If you're willing to to like take the load off, you know, just share it with someone, mm. and then they might be able to share something back and you've lightened the load on yourself by by airing it and sharing with someone, you know. Mm-hmm. So how did you go, like, did you have cravings or was the was the drive so strong that you that you didn't have any cravings? There was there was definitely cravings there. There was but I just knew I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And there was like I woke up in having dreams. That I was drunk, yeah, and I was really like common. so disappointed in myself. Yeah, and then and then you realise it's a dream. It's like such a big relief. Yeah, but yeah, it is. Apparently, it's really common. Yeah, it's but, a good reminder. I always say to people, yeah. just use it as a great reminder that you don't do it, and yeah. be grateful. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
So, and how did you get through the cravings initially? I guess the the reminder for me early on, once I, I'd had the initial three weeks off work, but then I had to go back to work and I had to catch a train from Berry at like 10 to 5 in the morning to get to work on time. Yeah. And so I was leaving home on the push bike in the middle of winter at like 10 to 4 maybe, yeah, about that. Yep. On the old on the old Kmart jobby push bike <laughs> with the cable, to, you know the the Dolphin Torch cable tied, and I had to ride past where I had the accident. Wow! So I had to look to my ride every every day going over and every day coming home. Um, reminder. Yeah, it was just that the reminder, and then you know having no car, I still had a license at the time. But I, the car was buggered, so yeah, yeah. there was no... Yeah, just reminding yourself, Ben Schiller, who comes on this podcast quite often... Um, I, I listened to one of these. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually had a Zoom call with him last night with my challenge groups about anxiety. Oh. It was it was wonderful. He's amazing. But he, he I remember him saying to me once that it's a, it's a good idea to remember the last worst night you ever had on alcohol if you have the cravings, so that's that playing the tape forward that mm. I talk about just remembering. And so that's what you were having, really. You were having that reminder shoved in your face twice a day. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it and sounds was, like you'd made the decision, like you were like, I'm not going back. Like you you were Yeah, I, had, I was pretty staunch on that decision, you know. Mm. And like I said, it's probably the only promise I've ever kept in my life. Yeah. Have you date. found it hard? Have you found the journey hard? No. I, oh, look... I almost went to the stage of getting the date tattooed across my chest. So every time I looked in the mirror, there was that reminder. Like I said, I've shared with so many people and I've never let it get to the back of my mind. It's always been there. Mm. And I think I've, I got to a stage after a couple of years of just saying to people, no, I don't drink. About six months sober, I connected with, reconnected with a guy that I was – I had met at a boxing gym, but I was like 100 kilos, still drinking and carrying on. Yeah. And then he said to me, well, why don't you come up? This was in Barry itself, and he was living in Barry as well. And he said, why don't you come and play rugby at Kayama? Because mm. he used to play rugby as a overweight guy. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I thought, yeah, why not? So I ended up playing in Kayama, and I met a whole new bunch of guys, and I'd actually played against the old team I used to play for. All right. Uh-huh. And they all knew me as the drunk guy that used to box. And yep. and I'd went to school with some of them, you know. Yeah. And then to play against them as this, like, fit guy that didn't drink yeah. was was pretty cool. Yeah. You know? That's nice, isn't it? Yeah. To yeah, it was way and, cool. Come back and be someone else. It's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. 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 And, um, and at that rugby club that, at Kayama, great bunch of blokes, but they still had that big drinking culture as well. It's rugby, you know. Right, so, yeah. right, so did that trigger um, you at all? Like that sense nah, of wanting to fit in and no, nah, not a, no, no. I just I'd I'd hang around till 
you know, they started getting close and spitting in your face <laughs> as they do, you know. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I just got to go to the toilet and then down the stairs and, and up out. to the train station and go. Yeah. 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 It sounds so. like you really created a new identity for yourself as well with that, you know, being that new guy and yeah. really owning that new version of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Which is super powerful. And, and I guess there was other things that um, helped along the way. Like I ended up a couple of months sober, I moved from Shalhaven Heads where I was pretty isolated over into Berry, where they had the train station and that. So that was a better option. And then I I started get home from work and I'd go running. Mm. And on the side of this country road, and it was like a 14K loop. Right, yeah. so I ended up running around that, and like they're going past you at eighty k's an hour. The cars and that, you know, yeah. and I'm running right on the edge of the lane. Yeah. My motivation early on was because I'd never played first grade at the the club I'd played for previously, mm-hmm. and and I had a bit of motivation. Like I want to, I know, oh no, I'm up to it. I want to play first grade at the new club, and right. I ended up starting in in first grade twice. So. I achieved that goal. That's awesome. And then I, I probably got a bit carried away with the running and and went on and, and ran a marathon in oh, September awesome. of 2009 in Sydney. Awesome. So about 15 months sober. Yeah. Yeah. So you really had some goals to work towards, which, you know, a few people that I coach end up doing marathons and things like that, which is really cool, yeah. you know, to have something to work towards other than just sobriety. Yeah, you know, yeah. a good physical goal to work towards. And I love mm. that you're running and playing rugby. So it sounds as though you were quite physical in your recovery. Yeah. 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 And I also had to, like, um, getting to work was, a, you know, only a short walk then. Like, at first it was a it was a 13K ride. Yeah. Um, but also a guy I worked with lived a bit further south and sometimes I'd ride 10Ks down to meet him and get a lift. Right. So yeah. there was a, there was a lot of physical stuff happening. Yeah. yeah, it was good. I think that's great. You know, I think yeah. that helps to clear the head and helps yeah, with yeah. the anxiety and absolutely, you, it's like quite meditative as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you stay in the AA program? I stay. I did. Um, I went pretty hardcore for the first twelve months. I did like a Thursday night in Berry, a Sunday in Nara. Uh, and a Monday night in Kayama. And I just it just sort of got to to me personally, I was thirty two when I got sober. Yeah. And I was looking around the room going, I'm not the youngest guy here. Right. You know? And they were all smoking ciggies and heaps of, like and it was almost like I could see them substituting their addiction from alcohol with cigarettes. And mm. I guess it was it was pretty judgmental, but I just it didn't really sit with me so well. Right. And um, so I, I sort of just walked away from it after about 12 months and and concentrated with the the personal psychologist, yep. which I did for, geez, up until probably, I'm been t- probably two years now, two years ago so you know 12 years of on and off psychology i guess amazing that's great i I think there can never (laughs) be enough of working with psychologists i see a therapist only see her once a month but Mm. and if i need to i'll see her more um but i think it's it's a really valuable thing to do and keep doing is seeing it's you know seeing someone 
to just mm. to kind of I don't know just to help you through, give you some more tools. You never learn enough. Yeah, well, that, well, it's, it's funny you mentioned the word tools. I um, I like to say to people that my recovery journey has been just putting a tool belt on and 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 adding tools as I go. You know, like mm. yes, I walked away from AA after twelve months, but nine years in. A guy I was working with in Port Kembla down south of Sydney there, Wollongong in the harbour, he was going through the struggle and I and I offered I said to him, Well, why don't we go to a meeting? So I went to half a dozen meetings with him and I'm like almost ten years sober. You know? oh, that's awesome. And then yeah. I went a couple of times in Cleveland and then an old opponent of mine in um Burley invited me to a meeting. I didn't know, but we've got that in common as well. And yeah. then, um, yeah, I've been to a couple of meetings in Coolangatta, so I haven't totally brushed it, and yeah. I and I really took a lot away from it. You know, the uh, something that really resonated with me and stuck with me forever was never mind the differences, focus on the what, and never more, Don't worry about the differences, focus on the similarities. Mm. It's writing that down. Focus. Never mind the differences. Focus on the similarities. Something like that. And I just, that really resonated with me and I never forgot that. And then the the serenity prayer, like I said, I'm not a God person, so I don't use, they they term it God of your own understanding or whatever. Yeah. But I I just don't feel comfortable using that word. It's just something I don't do. Yep. So I would replace God with universe or, or just... Grant me the serenity, you know, mm. and that and that really, yeah, that sort of is is what I needed inside me. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, you know the letting go and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know I would say one thing with recovery with recovery whether it's uh, through AA or through however you do it there has to be a spiritual component to it. Mm-hmm. I really believe that that there needs to be and a lot of inward work. It has to be the work on the inside, the emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't seem to stick. No, absolutely not. As we mentioned before, that they're not feeling like enough. So I, I think the most work I've done is the last 18 months on yeah. on me. Yeah. You know, I've got, I was still the king of shit decisions, right. you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Yeah. You know, I married a, a carbon copy of my mum. Right, yeah. That angry you know, controlling, domineering person. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just so that, um, yeah, that was terrible. But anyway, yeah. uh, um, coming out of that and realising that that was, it wasn't her fault. It's not her fault. That's her. Yeah. Why did Why was I going there? Yeah. Why did I accept that? Yeah. You know, so, and... So a lot of work over the last 18 months to two years has been forgiving my dad um, and forgiving myself for the worst night of my life that became the best Um, (laughs) and forgiving myself for making shit decisions still in recovery, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and then, and then doing some exercises with myself. Like I, so back then I started in the mirror, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror as teenager early 20s you know yeah. and i definitely couldn't love what i saw yeah um 
But right now, I sort of check myself out a little bit. <laughs> you know, Give yourself a wink. I wish the late. I do. I do. I wish the ladies were checking me out. But um, <laughs> no. So I've progressed from like I, I saw. It, I can't remember where I saw it, but it was like you know, just talking into the mirror and really looking deep into my eyes and saying, "You are enough." Yeah. And yep. I, yeah, and, and then progressed from that to you're more than enough, and then. And the one I'm on at the moment is you're fucking awesome, dude. <laughs> I love <laughs> so, that. I love mirror work. And a wink. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. you said, a wink and a smile. Yeah. It, it sort of yeah, makes me smile when I say that, you know. Yeah. I think mirror work is really important to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and to slowly to stop picking out your flaws, which so many of us do, but to start finding what we do like about ourselves and to look deep into the eyes of yourself and saying, I I say to myself in the mirror, I love you. I really, really love you. And fuck, when I first did that, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. I actually read it in a Louise Hay book. You can heal your life. And I just kept doing it. I kept doing it, kept doing it. And now I really do feel that. I feel the love for the person that I'm looking at in the mirror. Absolutely. And for so long, I didn't love that person. And now I do. I look deep in, it's, what's deep in the eyes, you know, deep in the soul. Mm-hmm. And even to love the parts of myself that I um, didn't love anymore. I've talked about in the podcast, you know, saggy boobs or a bit too much fat around the edges. <laughs> that I don't care. I just, I'm learning to love all of those things. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a beautiful place to be. Absolutely. It's a I agree. Better place to be. And, and going back to the 12 year old me, it was like I was looking through tears. Yeah. In the mirror of and back then I was like, Why doesn't my dad love me? And I remember waiting with anticipation to receive a twelfth birthday present from my dad and it never arrived. Mm. You know, and that broke my heart for years. Yeah. And I would look through those those tears into the mirror, why doesn't my dad love me? Yeah. Well, fast forward forty odd well thirty odd years and and now I know my dad a lot better. He doesn't have the capacity to love. Yeah. You know, right. he's the silent generation. Emotions weren't a thing for them. So It had such yeah. a big effect. And you wonder what they went through to be like that. And they were sure. probably a shitload better than the generation before them. Mm. There's a lot of generational healing that needs to be done. Absolutely. Uh, but having that compassion, it's not excusing them for you know, making you feel that way. But I guess it gives some understanding, you know, what's, what happened for them yeah. to, to, to be like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you do you feel that you um, are able to show up for yourself, the void that you had in childhood? Um, are you able to show up and provide that for yourself now? So like you were saying, the love that you didn't feel that you had from your dad, are you able to love yourself enough in that way and show up and provide the love for yourself that you didn't receive? Recently, yeah, like the last 12 months especially, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's been a long journey, you know. Like I said, um, the ex-wife thing, and then I blame my dad all that, all those years as well. And it wasn't until um, separating and divorcing from my ex-wife, I was like, hang on, that's my mum. And then um, spending more time with my dad and my stepmom, I was like, my dad did the same thing. He left my mum and then remarried my mum on a different version, you know. And I'm like, wow. So, yeah, I'm sort of just thinking that, yeah, my mum, 
I've got, I had issues around my mum's cold-hearted anger. You right, know? yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot of healing that has to be done. And I think uh, learning to give ourselves what we never got in childhood is is what the healing is all about. Yeah. 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 And, but also doing that, removing the blame because understanding that there's a parent that can't show up for us emotionally or who's addicted or whatever has gone through something. They're, they're just not like that for no reason. So to not excuse it, but to realize that, okay, how can we learn to give ourselves what we didn't receive or what we needed? Mm. Yeah, it's mm. a big, powerful journey. And that's what, that's for me, that's the mirror work has been key to that. Yeah, yeah. Like it, and, and, you know, man, I might do that. I might stop and look at myself in the mirror five times a day now, you know, whereas go back 20 years especially, I wouldn't have even, I would have been ashamed to look at yeah. overweight me in the mirror. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. I can relate to yeah, that. Yeah. Um, it's it's also acting in ways that uh, make us feel loved. So if you didn't feel loved in childhood, it sounds like you weren't acting in ways towards yourself that were very loving, like smashing yourself with alcohol is not a very loving choice. No, no, so perhaps absolutely not. Making choices for yourself that feel loving, that feel nurturing, mm-hmm. you know, with what you eat or how you show up in the world, how you treat yeah. your body. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, I've taken that my my health physically to like. I know there's a lot of people out there who say you can't be a healthy vegan. I I sort of don't want to debate it. I, that's what I do. Right. And you know, I mostly live off fruit nowadays, but um, yeah, I live pretty healthy in that way, and I think it's it's worked for me. Yeah, and that feels so loving for you. It feels more loving, nurturing. Yeah, beautiful, you know. Yeah, so. and it is. I think that's a beautiful way to live and to eat and nourish yourself. Um, last question, Steve. I think I know this one. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go back to twelve and speak to twelve-year-old you, spend some time with him, what would you say to him? Probably four things, maybe five. You are loved, loving and lovable. Uh, you are more than enough. You're not alone. And love yourself. Maybe one more. I just like, just a couple of weeks ago, I still get an AA message every day from an older sober guy. And I love this one. It said, um, don't let the world change your smile. Let your smile change the world. So I'd say that too. Yeah. Yeah. Although my my smile back then wasn't overly authentic, whereas it is right now. It can't get more authentic, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, such beautiful words. And, you know, and I guess speaking those words to yourself, Every day, you know, you are enough, mm. you're loved, you're lovable. And, mm. you know, it's, it's so healing to hear. Yeah. And I, I've, um, over the last year, I've also got my little daughter. We've got big mirrored wardrobes in her room and my room. And I'll just, she's such a parrot and a copycat that I'll stand in her mirror wardrobe and I'll say, you are enough. And she'll come up beside me and she'll say it as well. She doesn't realise why she's saying it now, but just to ingrain that into her. Oh, how beautiful. It's been, 
Yeah, it is. It's so cool to watch. Oh, my God. Imagine if we could bring up this next generation believing that they are enough, but really authentically. Well, they are. Yeah. And they, they are, of course, absolutely they are. are. We all are enough. Yeah. Yeah. But perhaps everyone listening to this, and if you've got kids or you know a young kid or if someone's mm-hmm. not creepy, you know, go and tell them that they're enough. Yeah, absolutely. That they're loved, lovable, and they're enough. And loving, yeah. You might just change the course of their life. Absolutely, you will. Yeah. Perhaps say it to anyone you see. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe we all need to send out a blanket message to people today. Yeah, this. yeah. You know, you're loved, you're lovable, and you're enough. Yep. Everyone needs to hear that. Absolutely. Yeah. Steve Woolett, thank you so much for joining me today in the studio. It's been a real treasure and a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> the pleasure's all mine being in Ash's studio. I'm so <laughs> starstruck still. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.